Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast of weekly Catholic conversation. I'm your host and the Pillar's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by Pillar co-founder and um, editor, Ed Condon. And Ed, there you are. Hi, J.D. Hi. How are you, man? I'm fine. Okay. Now, we are uh, we are recording this podcast on Thursday, January the 7th to be released, I expect, either on uh, Friday, January the 8th, or because we're still sort of getting our technical ducks in a row, possibly Saturday, January the 9th, um, but uh, to be released in the next couple of days. And uh, and so most of, I think, what we're going to end up talking about today is, um, is what happened yesterday in um, the nation's capital as Congress met to certify the uh, or to count the votes of the electoral college um but before we do that um today is january 7th and uh and ed for me that is a date um of sig- of double significance and uh, for you it is a date of single significance i suspect though there may be a double doublet there but for me it is a date of double significance because today is my wedding anniversary uh, my 15th wedding anniversary or my wife and i's wedding anniversary i suppose and um for our purposes today is the feast of saint raymond of Penyfort, the patron saint of canon lawyers. Uh, I, happy anniversary, J.D. Thank you, and happy feast day to you, Ed. It is a glorious feast day. Any day that you can you can feast in honor of canonists is a great thing. So do you know that much about Raymond of Penyfort? I know that he was a Dominican, I know that he was Spanish, and I know that he made windsurfing popular. He made windsurfing popular. That is uh, of the things that is not one that I did know. I'm being slightly facetious. The the common the most common um, depiction of Saint Raymond of Penyafor is him on a raft with a sort of you know one man sail, because I think at one point he had to flee Spain. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. Yes, I, I'm familiar with that picture. I I must admit never having done the homework to find out why he uh, was on that raft or uh, perhaps windsurfing board. I think he was fleeing the Spanish crown, but yeah, it does look remarkably like he's windsurfing. So, how do you typically celebrate the feast of Saint Raymond of Penyfort, the patron saint of canon lawyer? Ed and I, for those of you who do not know this, are both canon lawyers. We both have degrees in canon law, which is the um, ecclesiastical, uh, the internal ecclesi- ecclesiastical regulations of the church, consisting both of aspects of divine law and aspects of um, of, of of human human law. Um, uh, so um, with that said, Ed, how do you usually celebrate the Feast of St. Raymond of Penyfor? Uh, I, I don't tend to celebrate it perhaps as hard as I should, if hard is the right adjective. Uh, I mean, we obviously do the office for, for the Feast of St. Raymond. Um, I'll probably allow myself a Manhattan tonight uh, before dinner, maybe. I, I don't. I don't have many other plans. I imagine your your plans are rather more elaborate than mine, given that this is a double feast day for you. Well, I do not. I suppose have celebration of Saint Raymond of Penyfort Day um, plans, but I, I suppose we will. We will be celebrating Ray, the feast of Raymond of Penyfort, um, or we will be celebrating on the feast of Raymond of Penyfort because today is my fifteenth wedding anniversary. And so, what I've done and what we're going to do tonight is, um, I ordered um, a, a cake. That is a, a sent, I ordered as a cake a recreation of our wedding cake, and um, and then uh, and then invited our family over to come over and have have cake with us. Uh, so we'll, um, you know, have cake. I guess that that's very nice. I did. Did you have? I mean, was your wedding cake a memorable event? Is it something that's a bit of a? It was a cake that we liked. I mean, we like cake. I guess is the thing to say. We, yeah, we're I, you might even say cake eaters, right? Um, so uh, <laughs> to borrow a term I've never understood from the Mighty Ducks, uh, you might even say cake eaters. Um, I just assumed that in the Mighty Ducks, when they were saying cake eater, that this was a this was a nonsense substitution for some sort of profanity that they felt they couldn't get away with in a Disney film. And so they, you know, you know, when you have you know sort of invented child's profanity, like you know, you can't have kids using actual curse words in films. So they just they came up with ones like it doesn't mean anything, but you know. It sounds like a really bad cuss. I'm sure that's so. Um, according to the Urban Dictionary, a cake eater actually refers to... See, the problem with the Urban Dictionary is that the definitions are written like with no standardization. But um, a cake eater is a phrase frequently used in Minnesota, um, a phrase to refer in part to people of a in Minnesota, suggesting that they're so rich they can both have their cake and eat it too. It could also refer to rich suburban kids in general. Um, Mighty Ducks was filmed in Minnesota, so probably um, 
the uh, use of the phrase is a reference to Edina, Minnesota, I guess. I don't know. It, that makes sense. It was used, as I recall, against a character who was well-to-do. Yeah, Banks, the guy who uh, the, who had to join the team. Well, I mean, I think Gordon, they used it for Gordon, too. But then also Banks, the kid who's who was redistricted and ended up on the team. That's right, yeah. Adam Adam Banks. <laughs> Adam Banks, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Oh, man. Uh, okay, so um, going back to the tangent uh, that we were on... We got married on the on the on the vigil of Epiphany, so we uh, the liturgical Epiphany. So we use the Epiphany readings for Mass, and yeah, I guess that's that. But we use the Epiphany readings for Mass, and then we because we were getting having our reception on the vigil of Epiphany, we got a cake that looked like a stack of presents, and, oh. um, which was cool. And uh, and so we had this pile of presents, and the cake was really good. It was a chocolate cake with uh, raspberry mousse, and we liked it. So that's that's nice. Our our wedding cake was a. It was something that we didn't talk about for a year or two after our wedding. It was really? Sort of, Do tell. Well, I mean, it was, I, I, you know, I was a young man, very much in love. I still am very much in love with my wife. Uh, and I wanted her to have the wedding that she wanted. And I wanted it to be, you know, however she wanted it to be. And so she said, I want to have a really nice wedding cake that people actually enjoy eating. And so I said, yes, fine. And she took me to a patissiere. Um, and we, we sat in a booth with, um, a man named Ronaldo who showed us a slideshow of various cakes on a laptop, which was a significantly nicer laptop than the one I owned at the time. And at the end of it, my wife made her wishes known and Ronaldo, um, instructed the, the baker to make the cake. Now the cake as a line item expense in our wedding turned out to be rather more than I was anticipating when I agreed to sort of give my wife her head on this. And that upset me. But what really upset me was the cake guru fee. Um, the cake guru fee. In other words, your consultation fee for sitting with Ronaldo yeah. and looking at pictures of cake. And let's just say Ronaldo charges more an hour than I will ever charge in my entire life. And all he did was show me pictures of cake on a laptop. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a, it was a fabulous cake. Uh, you know, people who were there loved it. People who see wedding photos of it say, that's a lot of cake. And I concede that it is a lot of cake. But it, yeah, I, I won't be asking Ronaldo to do a, a sort of artistic recreation of our wedding cake ever, um, however much I love my wife. I must admit that I'm eager to see a photo of it. But that's not what that's not what we're here to talk about today. Uh, so um, now that we have done, now that we have had the pleasantries, I suppose we ought to dispense with them. Um, because uh, Can you uh, not have your talk- pleasantries and eat them too? <laughs> I don't know. Um, what we the things that we we're planning to talk about today, Ed. I think we are not going to talk about today. Instead, I think we we're going to talk almost entirely about what happened um, yesterday. So yesterday, the uh, a joint session of Congress was convened to count the votes of the Electoral College, uh, which is sort of the final step in the formal election of a president. Uh, the vice president, who is the president of the Senate, presides over basically opening envelopes and counting, and then at the end says, you know, announces with however many votes, so-and-so is the winner. Um, and there was anticipation that um, that uh, some lawmakers would object to very, you know, to the, to the electoral college slates from the states in which the Trump campaign has called uh, the election results into question, and and in fact that happened. A, a lawmaker from Arizona called into question the um, legitimacy of the Arizona ballot or the uh, Arizona slate of electors. And at the same time, there was in Washington D.C. yesterday a um, a rally, a stop the steal rally of supporters of President Trump who believe that the election has been stolen from him, and um, uh, who wanted to demonstrate to that effect. And in fact, President Trump spoke at that rally and. Um, affirmed their position that the election had been in some way stolen from him and encouraged them to march to the Capitol, which was the plan of the rally, and to let their lawmakers know that they believed that the rally had been stolen, or that the election had been stolen from them. And they marched to the Capitol, as rallies in Washington are wont to do. And upon arriving at the Capitol, some of the demonstrators um, got into a bit of a tussle with police at a barricade. They broke the barricade, and before you knew it, there was um, a flood of people, though I think the number of actual people who fit into this category is not clear, but there was a flood of people who entered the United States Capitol, who, um, uh, I guess the only way to say it is who 
breached the Capitol. I mean, who who, who took the cat? Who occupied the Capitol? Um, who flooded in and uh, lawmakers were put into secure locations and there's video of police running and occupied offices and occupied hallways and the dais and um, and, and a, a woman was shot. I mean, everybody saw it. I don't need to just keep summarizing and summarizing it. But it was unlike <laughs> unlike anything that I have seen in my lifetime. Uh, it, it was unlike anything I've seen in the United States in my lifetime, that's for sure. I mean, you do yeah. see these things happen from time to time in other countries. Uh, someone I was speaking to last night, and I was expressing my mystification that this could be allowed to happen. Um, the person I was talking to is Spanish and lives in Spain. He said, well, they did the same thing over here about a year ago, actually. And I, I was unaware of that. Um, but I think that that rather goes to the point of exactly how um, shocking it is to see this done in the Capitol building in, in Washington, because we view it to be the sort of uh, the, the summit of democratic iconography, small d. And, and to see um, the, the entire political order that is premised on the peaceful transfer of power and the sovereignty of duly conducted elections to be um, breached in this way, I think, was was certainly dramatic and extremely discouraging. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I suppose, interestingly, one way in which we can say that it was not completely unique to anything we've seen in our lifetime is that there was a group of people who were a part of a, not a Stop the Steal rally, but a group of people who were a part of an anti-pandemic um, lockdown rally uh, this summer who um, sort of occupied um, the the Michigan State Capitol, although the Michigan State Capitol wasn't closed during their occupation, but who sort of um, occupied the space of the Capitol with their with their guns and their presence. They did. Um, and I remember at the time, uh, I, I think we mentioned it on another podcast in a different era uh, at the time, that that was also extremely worrisome. And I mean, of course, you know, this has been a year of intense civil unrest um this is you know i i think you know the the events of january 6th are in many ways a fitting crescendo to the year that was 2020 i mean you know if you sort of are reading the sheet music of 2020 you can't really see any other finale than than what we got yesterday which is extremely dispiriting um i'd say even more so in that no one seems to really have a handle on how we got here or what we're supposed to do next. You know, there is the sort of usual um, platitudinous, we have to move on, we have to turn a page, we have to do all that, which is, you know, it's a sort of understandable reflexive statement, but unless it's coupled with a clear diagnosis of what's actually gone on uh, and an even clearer prescription for how we're going to move on, how we're going to turn the page, I, I don't see it happening. I mean, I guess what I really worry about, if we're just going to talk about this, um, is Donald Trump is about to no longer be the president. Uh, you know, he's he's out in 13 days, come what may, and that that will be what it is. But if he's out of office, he will not be out of at least restrained. Well, he will, well, <laughs> I, I I I don't think he's a man who's been operating under much restraint in the last four years. But uh, he will he will not be out of all power that you know this is this is a crowd that arrived in washington dc um at his invitation and overture it was a crowd that marched on the capitol again at his invitation and overture and even as he was asking them very very nicely to to stop sacking the capitol building he was basically saying but of course you're entirely right in what you're doing and why you're doing it and He's not going to lose that microphone or presumably the ability to influence at least enough people to do such things uh, just by virtue of no longer occupying the White House. And so I find that very discouraging. And, you know, again, this isn't to say that there isn't (laughs) also a serious problem with the sort of things we've seen going on in Portland all year, Uh, you know, the sort of Antifa um, looting and violence and systematic arson in some parts of cities you know that's all a problem too but again i guess this is my point is the idea that we're somehow um going to have a new political regime and therefore all of these problems will disappear i think is fanciful because the problems are not primarily caused by people in or through the use of political office they are primarily caused by people trafficking in um anti-factual conspiracy theory 
And that's not going anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because there have been a number of um, political scientists and sociologists who prior to this year, 2020, had been writing the kinds of pieces that said um, America is sort of due for um, a dramatic increase in political violence because of um, a set, you know, because of a set of circumstances, uh, because because of a broad set of circumstances that tend to sort of um, correlate with uh, with increases in in political violence, increasing polarization, inc- um, uh, 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 rising levels of unemployment among some populations, um, uh, rising sort of institutional distrust, especially as a large one, religious disaffiliation, a number of things that are all sort of correlated to um, to political violence, and and uh, and and here we have it. We began with a political violence. Uh, we began with the political violence of the summer, and um, and the political violence of the summer was the um, there were this summer both uh, protest you know protests which were not politically violent and um, protests which were dramatically politically violent and in many cases sort of um, a complicated uh, uh, mix of the two and um, and then and and yesterday what you saw is a group of people with a position that does not make sense to me but who were um, I don't think most people there were storming the capital and so there was again this sort of synthesis of bubbling and burgeoning political violence with people who might otherwise have been protesting something without being disinclined to be violent. And I guess it just, my point is, I guess it seems to me, once sort of the lid is off for political violence as um, as an ordinary part of the public process, it does not seem to me like that is um, the kind of thing that just organically dispels. And so I, I have every reason to think, you know, I mean, I think we all have every reason to think that political violence is will be a continue a continuing facet of uh, American public political discontentment. I'm sure it will. I, I think we're more likely to see um, what happened at the Capitol yesterday as a the beginning of a new chapter rather than the closing of um, a, a particular chapter, and that's very dispiriting. But I think the problem is that very, I mean, you, you see people kind of nibbling around the edges of this, but I've yet to see any articulation of it that it's especially clear, and I think we, you know, as I said, we need one, um, is that the what prevents political violence and what ends political violence um, and also what causes political violence actually has at its root little to do with politics i don't mean that as a subject but i mean in terms of the actual mechanisms of politics that you know in in an otherwise stable and peaceful um, political order which is what we have or have had um, what keeps this kind of extreme minority violence from bubbling to the top and, and being brought into action is society, is societal norms as much as political norms, is um, a common set of values, a common set of uh, ways of looking at the world, or a common set of at least basic premises in which we all go about our daily lives, and we no longer have that anymore. And I think surely politics has played some part in exacerbating the decline of our society you know the the quote-unquote culture wars uh that that have been a feature of the american social landscape for the better part of several decades now um have been in my view and i've i've said this before uh, a way in which we have weaponized social division as a vehicle for political power and that's bad um, I think we have also seen in the last year in particular, uh, through you know the pandemic and everything and the, and the necessary lockdown measures we had, we've seen most of the social safeguards that would otherwise guard against the kind of viral mutation of disinformation, bad information, conspiracy theories, you know, radical counterfactual proposals which people are in, you know, latching onto taking is true and reacting to um, the kind of guardrails that we have against that in ordinary life have disappeared. You can't meet people. You can't sense check what you're hearing and what you're reading with members of your family. You can't go down to the bar and, you know, say, oh, I read this thing today and have people hoot at you and say, well, that's nuts. Why are you that's reading ridiculous. that? Why are you looking at that stuff? Right. Exactly. exactly. None of it. We haven't had any of that in a year. And that's, I think, contributed to this in a way that we, we haven't even begun to understand. Uh, add to that pressures of mass unemployment, um, an uncertain economy, and a lingering fear of death. And yeah. I mean, I, this is something that has struck me repeatedly throughout this year. Is I want to I want to try and draw a distinction that I think will I hope will make sense, which is the fear of death is 
um, the most destructive human emotion or human existential condition if it's done irrationally. Now, I've seen at different times some priests and the occasional bishop and some sort of Christian public intellectuals attempt to say Christians' response to the pandemic is not to be afraid and uh, been pilloried for this. Uh, some have expressed this idea more or and some less bad. Well, um, well, right. and, and that's, you know, that's that's the danger of trying to articulate a complicated thought. But <clears throat> I do think it's true that what we have seen uh, as a sort of common societal baseline in the last year is an irrational fear of death, which is not a, you know, a rational fear of death in the context of a pandemic is, um, you know, concern about public health, concern about the common good, concern about people who have the kind of comorbidities which could make something like the coronavirus extremely lethal to them. So if that's a rational fear of death, which gives rise to a set of rational behaviors, that's fine and that's one thing that's to be encouraged. But what I think we've seen a lot of is an irrational fear of death, which is not necessarily rooted in the fear of getting a virus or seeing mass contagion or whatever. It's a, it's a personal confrontation with the existential reality of mortality, which is something that our culture is very much geared towards ignoring and avoiding and burying. And I think, you know, when we speak about the culture of death, which is something we have spoken a lot about in the last sort of 25 years, mostly thanks to JP2, um, you know, one of the sort of warped facets of the culture of death is that it denies death, basically, that it tries to it tries to move it out of the way and deny that it's a it's a factor. And so um, the old and the infirm are, are pushed out of everyday life and society and sort of relegated to places that um, we can't see them and we don't have to worry about them, that extreme suffering and even increasingly moderate suffering in, in some countries, most notably Belgium um, and other places in Europe, is met with euthanasia because we can't be confronted with the reality of human suffering and death. Um, abortion is, you know, the ultimate marker, which is, you know, dressed up as healthcare when it's not. It's just the taking of innocent human life. <clears throat> but so our society is very much built around this, this way of... Um, excluding death from the conversation, most of all, excluding death from our daily lived experience. And so when we are suddenly confronted en masse as a society with the reality of death and the reality of our own mortality and the fragility of our own lives and the relative powerlessness we actually have over all of this, it causes basically a mass freak out, which I think was what we've been having. And again, then absent the normal social contact, family contact, friends contact, things that we normally have, this amplifies it even further. And I think this is a huge um, contributing factor to what we've been seeing. Okay, so I'm glad that you clarified because at first when you said the fear of death, I, I, I kind of thought that you were, it does not seem to me that you are saying um, uh, uh, it is irrational to, uh, public health measures are sort of irrationally predicated on the fear of death. And, you know, we, we shouldn't have, we should, you, you hear sometimes, you know, um, Christians shouldn't be afraid of death and therefore we should be, you know, totally willing to go on living our lives as we were living our lives and expect that God will take us if he wants to take us. You are not, it does not seem to me saying that. It seems no, on the contrary. Are, yeah. And I'm, I'm really, I'm relieved to know that it seems to me instead you're saying we have, while public health is important, there is um, a sort of broad cultural sociological or psychological effect of suddenly being confronted with mortality for um for 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 culture the for a culture the west so to speak which has which is largely built around the idea that immortality can be achieved through technocracy absolutely and i mean again the, i want to stress the distinction i'm drawing here is between a rational fear of death which gives rise to a rational set of behaviors to answer it and an irrational fear of death which is basically a fear of our own mortality which we refuse to confront which provokes irrational behaviors so you see that as a contributory factor to the kind of political violence that we have seen this year, both on the left and on the right. Yes, I, I see it as a as um, a major contributing factor that people are collectively freaking out when confronted with their own mortality, and they are looking for an outlet for the kind of um, profound existential anxiety they are feeling in all of that. And that you know, when you are overwhelmed with a sense of powerlessness and you've been socially isolated, what do you gravitate towards? A crowd. Well, hey, here's 11,000 people who all vote for the same guy that I do, so I'm going to go to that. And hey, there's 500 more who who seem to really, you know, have uh, some kind of explanation which for the circumstances that we're in, that it's an answer. And this is really what I mean about the church having an important role to play in all this, because what these people are fundamentally, I would argue, seeking is an answer to the reality of their death. 
And that, and if that answer is coming from people who are peddling political conspiracy theories, that's not going to take you in a good place. But the church does have an answer in the front of, in front of the reality of death, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That this is the mission of the church in a moment of pandemic is, yes, of course, to protect human life because all human life is sacred and to behave rationally in response to a rational fear of death. But in front of the ordinary human reaction of an irrational fear of death, and the reality of our own mortality, the church is called to proclaim the gospel. And this is, I think, the real thing the church needs to focus on right now. I think having, um, I think having a, a worldview, which I suppose another way to say it is having faith, having the gift of faith, um, by which one knows that this world is only sort of the, um, the precedent to um, eternal beatitude, um, is one which contextualizes the significance of... Um, temporalities, or I don't want to say relativizes the significance of temporalities, but certainly gives us a framework by which to say, my life is more than what happens in this world. The meaning of my life is more than what happens in this world. And um, the moral judgments I make about um, both about justice sort of in a broad sense, but also about my own comportment and my own responses to those justice to that justice um, has to do with the identity of God and my, um, my eternal destiny, which is to be conformed to, to the identity of God. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, the a Christian a Christian life which is lived animated by the reality of one's baptism is one that has um, not just a sort of founded hope in the resurrection and um, you know a, a sort of theoretical appreciation for for life after death but lives their life illuminated by that fact. And it doesn't mean that what happens on earth no longer matters and that you can be gung-ho and say, oh, well, if I get the virus and die, I get the virus and die. On the contrary, it lends an urgency and a seriousness to what we do on earth because we understand that it has eternal ramifications for us. And it is a moderating influence on our conduct because if we live our life animated by the knowledge that we will be judged. Right, exactly. That's, I think, the important part is that moderating influence on our conduct. Whereas if you have an irrational fear of death, at least according to me, there is no reason to get out of bed in the morning except if you want to grill a steak. Well, I suppose according to you, but on the other hand, I suppose this is where I've thought of things as being more nihilistic than um, than I think you have. If you, um, There is a way in which political violence is the assertion of sort of... Um, uh, the sort of co-opting of a, a cause by just a sort of will to power, and if you have a sort of nihilistic worldview in which um, sort of correcting wrong by a, by the assertion of power, um, in other words, in which methodology, the methodology of achieving justice is not more is is, is not um, as important as the attainment of what you believe to be justice, you know, then you can justify sort of storming the Capitol to break up the thing. You can justify the idea that the vice president should do a thing he has the power to do, um, even if he doesn't, you know, he has like sort of the practical power to do, even if he doesn't have the legal power to do. You can justify um, sort of declaring as occupied and sovereign a portion of a city because um, because fundamentally um, the sort of assertion of power in order to achieve your own sort of perception of, a, of, of, of justice is is reasonable in, in that circumstance, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, but this is, the relativism always has a high body count. Um, you know, these are, if you like, mass events or at least very high-profile events that involve um, very eye-catching sets of circumstances around them. But the the I would argue the underlying motivation and philosophy behind all of them is exactly the same as every individual act of abortion. Huh. That this is, you know, this is a necessary undertaking. This is a necessary cost to be paid for a higher justice or a higher set of circumstances. And there's no judgment for it. This is purely a question of the balancing of, of relative outcomes and deciding which one is, is better. And there is no higher judgment to it than that. In a certain way, living by the sort of ethos, well, I did what I had to do. Exactly. Let, let's talk more about the place of the church. So I, I want to talk about the place of the church, and then I want to talk about particularities in the church. But the place of the church, you know, um, th this is a this is not, I think you're right that this is the beginning of something uh, in the United States. I think you're right that this is the beginning of uh, ongoing political violence in the United States. And um, I think it's a difficult moment for bishops, and that's kind of evidenced by the fact that it seems to me that a lot of bishops have sort of been caught flat-footed by this and, and not quite know what to say, um, you know, um, not quite know, I, I think not quite know even how to lead right now, and, and maybe a lot of Catholics feel that way, not just bishops, but um, it, it's, a, it's a difficult moment, and it's not a difficult moment in sort of which, like, um, well, we're praying for a just resolution to this, and tomorrow we'll move on to the next thing, is is sufficient. Um, but it does seem to me to be a moment for, for, for an opportunity for self-reflection and kind of an opportunity for the way in which the church has operated 
in um, in the world in the culture of the United States, and I think especially a recognition the the, the year of political violence that we have just had, capped off by the storming of the Capitol, um, is an opportunity I think for the church to ask you know to to sort of um, accept and to say rather definitively, okay, we are living, it has been difficult for us to say this, we have been disinclined to say this, or, or, um, we, we have not wanted to sort of concede this, but um, we are living in a post-Christian America, to the extent that America has been informed by a, by, um, by a Christian worldview, and I think that's a question for another day, but to the extent that America has been formed by a Christian worldview, or to the extent that um, Christian religious practice has been an influential force in the behavior and comportment of Americans, um, that it, we are no longer, you know, that is no longer the environment in which we live. We are living definitively in a post-Christian America. Um, and, you know, you see the emergence of new kind of religious phenomena. QAnon is is a is a, both a sort of metaphysical and doctrinal religious phenomena that I think is rather, you know, obviously kind of... It's a neo-Gnosticism. Um, yeah, exa- that's exactly right. And it becomes influential in, in the same way I think that the LDS sort of emergence was. Um, but it becomes influential in people's lives, occupy, you know, sort of um, possessive in the same way that zealous religious faith does. Um, and uh, and then um, politics occupies the same sort of political obsession, political preoccupation, and especially sort of um, tribalistic political preoccupation, sort of um, uh, us versus them political preoccupation. Because I don't think too many people who stormed the Capitol yesterday are really deep into the weeds on, like, you know, mo- America's monetary policy or something like that, right? I mean, this I is- would like to think the guy stripped to the waist in the buffalo hat has, you know, I, I imagine he wants to return to the gold standard. I, <laughs> I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but it's just my gut reaction is that's a guy who his, his gut, gut instinct is buy gold. I'm, I'm just, that's just my thought. Um, at any rate, um, I, 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 you know, a tribalistic sort of, um, uh, political identity, which which I think gives identity and meaning and a sense of belonging and all the things that and many of the things that religion does and a sense of sort of purpose towards a greater end and and many of those things, I, I think yeah I don't think there's any way for the church not to say we're living in a post-Christian America and once we say that um, it, in a certain way I think it is a liberating moment for the church and and I've been sort of saying this for a long time that I think that's coming that 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 sort of rather clear recognition is coming. You know that um, being uh, sort of perfectly inserted into American culture and living for the gospel are are at, at increasing odds with each other, and the the virtue of saying that the reason why I think it's liberating is because I think it gives us a clarity of purpose and a clarity of mission. Um, if you think that you live in a Christian culture and you think that things are not going the right way and you think the government's doing the wrong thing, you know you kind of are you kind of are sort of saying like, well, we we should be engaging and what should our strategic relationship be and you know um, how do we engage with civic powers in order to achieve the good of the church and but if you recognize, oh, we're not living in a Christian America. The emperor is. Um, uh, you know, the emperor does not have a Christian worldview, the, the you know, and, and so on and so forth. The culture at large does not have a Christian worldview. Um, the primacy of the Lord's command to go and make disciples of all nations becomes more sort of manifestly, immediately, and urgently um, related to you and the mission of your everyday life. I would certainly agree with that. Um, of course, having that kind of frank admission within the church you say it can be liberating. I would agree with you. I can't think of anything more liberating for the church than to to understand with renewed clarity the the essence and essential nature of the missionary imperative. But it involves upending the entire structural mentality of the church in this country as it has existed at least for the last hundred years, right. which is to say um, it, it has been in a in a mindset of institutional management, which is the people are there and they are to be, um, you know, accommodated and provided for and more or less, you know, catered to. I don't mean that in a negative sense. I just mean, you know, the Catholics turn up on Sunday. It's our job to make this something for them to turn up to. Um, And increasingly, I would say, and this has been a societal trend for several decades, but I, well, it's actually, I'd say it's been, it's been a, I, if I had to date, I'd say it's been a societal trend since the Second World War. And I would say that for particular reasons, which we won't get into now, because then we really would end up down a cul-de-sac that we wouldn't be able to finish the show ever. But I'm happy to talk about it another time. But I would say since the Second World War, we've been in a situation in this country where um, the the institutional footprint of the church in terms of people has been in decline. And so an, a mentality of managed decline has crept into how 
um, dioceses are run. And I don't mean this is a this is not a criticism. This isn't a knock. You and I both know people who work slavishly hard in chanceries and have a zealous care for souls. So I'm you know I'm not taking shots at anybody here. But if you are in possession of, for example, a huge um, footprint of parish buildings and schools and other affiliated institutions, you have to do something with them and you have to manage them. Now, if you don't have, <clears throat> if you have the expectation or are proceeding under the expectation that, well, we're having a dip in finances or we're having a dip in numbers, but our goal is to claw that back and our goal is to right the ship and, you know, basically restore to stability this massive institutional footprint, that causes you to look at things in a particular way and recommends a certain number of different courses of action. Whereas if you're saying, no, we live in a post-Christian society and our primary mission, both in the spiritual and practical sense, is to evangelize from basic principles, then suddenly the utility of this massive footprint and the way in which it should be properly managed and oriented changes dramatically. Which is not to say it has no utility, but just its purpose becomes dramatically different. Absolutely. Not to say it has no utility, but how you use it, how you manage it, your entire way of thinking has to change. And so I entirely understand why it's difficult for people to, you know, at the level of the episcopacy and the hierarchy to get their heads around this idea that, no, we live in a post-Christian society. Is It contradicts everything they've ever been um, everything they've ever lived and everything they've ever been trained to do. Yeah, and and I would say, um, you know, what you're talking about are ecclesiastics. Um, you know, the mentality of those who work, you know, who work either the, the mentality of clerics or the mentality of those who work in ecclesiastic, professional ecclesiastical ministry or chancery administration or something like that. But but I think actually the transformation that is a small subset of the kind of transformation of mentality that is needed. And the reason for that is because the transformation of the laity um, in, in an institutionalized sort of ecclesiastical milieu, it becomes very easy for um, for Catholics to have a largely consumeristic mentality. And, um, and by that I mean um, we pray at home, we send our kids to the parish school, or we homeschool. We um, we go where we're being right. We go where we're being fed. That's such a common sort of trope now. Um, you ask people about their parish, where their where the parish is, and well, the reason we go to this parish is because that's where we're being fed. And um, uh, it is important to be um, nurtured and um, fed uh, spiritually and formed spiritually and catechetically. But um, but the primary orientation of all Christians is an apostolic orientation. The um, the, uh, the 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 great commission is not a is not a clerical commission um, and uh, uh, and clerics are no more I mean clerics are not even sort of necessarily I think it is a bad analogy to think of clerics as the commissioned officers and us as sort of noncoms in the great commission um, uh, the um, the danger in an, the, the danger in, in a milieu of an institutional church is to be to begin to think of ourselves as lay people in a relation in a passive relationship with sort of the church which feeds and nurtures and forms us. And then to think of ourselves, maybe for parents, to think of ourselves sort of as like, well, my job as a Christian is to is to form my children in the Christian life. Um, and it is. One of my jobs as a Christian is to form my children in the Christian life. But um, the whole sort of corpus of magisterium tells, to say nothing of scripture, um, uh, uh, tells me that my mandate as a Christian is um, to live in a way that is that animates the temporal order with the spirit of Christ, and that um, that um, that informs uh, and forms and transforms um, not just sort of culture and society, but transforms hearts for Christ. Like my mission, because I am baptized, is to be an evangelist of sure. the gospel. Um, but this is exactly what I was saying about having a sort of um, a a. a, 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 a uh, a managerial mindset of accommodation for an existing faithful that this is exactly the relationship you're describing as as being problematic is you know it's my job as a catholic to turn up to my to the parish it's my job as a catholic to bring my kids to the catholic school and it's the job of the church to make sure that there is a parish building there and it's the job of the church to make sure there is a catholic school there and that this is exactly the kind of relationship that an institutional um, mentality of the church, and again, I don't mean institutional in a in a pejorative sense. I mean that the right, church right. is, you know, a, an established uh, institution. If, if you're living in a holy, flourishing Christian culture, that sort of makes sense in a certain yes. way, right? I mean, but if you're living in effectively 
mission territory, then right. that relationship has to change. Then suddenly the, the the entire orientation of the diocese, of the parish, of the family has to change from being fundamentally inward looking, which is the you know the parishioners come to the parish, the parish is part of the diocese, and everything is self, sort of self referential. It has right. to be turned completely outside. It has to be turned inside out, so that every parish is fundamentally about mission, is fundamentally about evangelizing, and every person in the parish views their responsibility as a Catholic, not primarily to make sure they turn up to Mass on Sunday. Obviously, that's an obligation, but I mean, that's not their primary obligation. It's an obligation. Their primary obligation is to live out their baptism, which is to win souls for Christ, which is to ensure that the charisma is announced to all people. And that means that I have to talk with my wife and you have to talk with your wife, you know, and and, and to, to, to ask ourselves and to discern sort of what is the apostolic identity of our family? What is our what is the apostolic mission and the apostolic work of our family? And in order to do that, I also have to say kind of what is, uh, you know, what we have to know something about what the charisms of our family are, so to speak, but we also have to know something about what is the interior life of our family. Um, if God wants us to have, if we have an apostolic mission, as sort of, if God has placed us in a post-Christian culture um, and with, <laughs> with the mandate to make disciples of all nations, not only do we have to know how to do that, but we also have to ask ourselves, is our family life sustained by the kind of life of prayer that we are capable of proclaiming the gospel, and if not, then I have to ask myself as a Christian, like, well, what am I? What, what are the steps that I can take to um, to ensure that our family life is animated by an interior life, so that it ha- it can serve its apostolic mission? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, and you know, I, I pe- when I say this kind of stuff, people sort of say to me, like, well, what what should I do? What do you mean? And um, and I think that's so dependent on circumstance, the circumstances of time and place. Um, you know, I think I really do. Um, your your you know your situation, Ed. You, you are in a different situation than I am, and other families are in different situations than we are in terms of the kinds of relationships that we can build, the kind of conversations that we can have, um, etc. But um, but but surely, I think we can we can begin to ask ourselves what are the kinds of formational and evangelical relationships that I could have that I don't, and if we really don't know at all, um, or even if we do, you know, it is actually one of the jobs of the church to help us sort of discern the practical sort of um, uh, application of, of our Christian identity. So I think it's a totally reasonable thing to ask our pastor. It may seem strange, and he might even blanch at us, but good, if it puts him in an uncomfortable position, good. I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask our pastor, how should we be evangelizing? And I don't sort of mean like, um, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words, or be nice, you know, but... Uh, that doesn't I, count. I don't That's mean, fake. Right, exactly, exa- exactly. And I don't sort of mean, I mean, if you ask the pastor, how should we be evangelizing? And he says, like, well, just keep giving the witness of your family. He's not... You guys need to think about it together more. And, and so do the Flints, right? I mean, the Flints have some answers to those questions. What are the evangelical relationships that we have? But not enough. And actually, the pandemic, I think, has so changed our life and the modus operandi of our life that we have to rediscern. We've been realizing, oh, a lot of the ways in which we used to have relationships of formation or evangelization have changed and so we have to we have to ask ourselves what does it mean for us to be evangelists um now or to have an apostolic orientation to our family right now yeah absolutely i mean but again this is what is the <clears throat> again this is what i mean about requiring you know, sort of turning turning the orientation of of our average parish inside out is you know if we if we view the if we view the the parish as the sort of primary hub of christian life then what is it for? It's not just to form good mass-going Catholics. It's to train missionary disciples. Right. That's what it's for, and it's got to be able to do that. And that means, but that, you know, again, what you said is, you know, the idea that accepting that we live in a post-Christian society can be incredibly liberating. Okay, in a sense it can be, but it carries with it a lot of responsibilities and a lot of decisions that have to be taken because it's certainly true that most dioceses aren't you know, don't primarily see themselves as forming missionary disciples of all of the faithful. Most parishes aren't geared that way. Most priests aren't trained to do that. You know, when they when they land in a parish in their first assignment, most priests aren't trained to think that way. And that's not the training they receive. And so we have to look at, you know, how can we, how can we, and when I say we, I mean the church, begin to support itself in this reinvention to recognize our place in a post-Christian society. Yeah, and I think most of us aren't catechized sort of in, in formation that way too. I can think of growing up in an evangelical church and like in Sunday school learning, um, this is a methodology for sharing the gospel with um, a friend, right? I mean, the, you know, this is oh, the there's way methodology, in which we do this. right? Exactly. Um, 
and uh, and sort of like knowing, okay, you know, you could you can talk to a friend about this, or you can. Um, but but I think I don't think we are. I don't think that we have been formed. I can say for myself, I don't think I have been formed to know. Um, there are certain things that seem clear to me that I can um, uh, that I can invite people into a genuine experience of beauty, or that I can invite people into a genuine sort of friendship, and from that friendship, sort of begin to give witness to my own faith and a reason for the hope that I have. And and there are ways in which I I think our family is doing that, but there are lots of ways in which our family isn't doing that. And I, I guess I even for myself feel, looking at the storming of the Capitol, um, I feel like the solution is not principally a political solution. Well, we better vote for a better guy next time. I feel clear to me, um, the solution is, first of all, I feel that the solution to that problem is uh, is is less important than the solution to the the things which led to it. In other words, like, um, it is not a, I'm not saying I want to evangelize people so that we have a better government. Um, I'm saying I'm, I see that we are not living as a people, as Christians. And, um, and, uh, and and I see that I myself need to find more ways in which um, the Flynns can be um, uh, in a, a, a missionary family, even if we don't, you know, even in from our own home. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems to me to be urgent. Okay, so let's talk about. Um, uh, so so we've talked about that. Let's talk about. Um, uh, ways in which there are, I mean, I think there are figures in the church. So what happened yesterday, what happened yesterday was, um, uh, you know, this group of people who said that they thought that the president's election was being stolen went to see the president at the mall and the president said, go tell your congressman, give your congressman a, mes- a message after they, they marched to the Capitol and they breached the Capitol. Um, there is a whole sort of a, a milieu behind that that uh, you wrote about this morning touching, you know, connected to the church, and maybe you could just talk about that a little bit. Uh, okay, so... That's not a very good transition, but what can you do? <laughs> yeah, um, no, what I wrote about this morning, and um, I, I think we have to we have to pay attention to as a church, is, I mean, I don't know if you saw the image of people, like, erecting a cross um, no. at the Capitol. Yeah, there was, there was some footage going out of people, like, erecting a cross um, at the Capitol as the sort of storming of the Capitol was going on. And I found that deeply unedifying because, obviously, the cross is not a prop in a political demonstration. Right. Still less a prop in the sort of lawless occupation of a government office. Right. Um, it's still less of a, a prop for a demonstration staged on the, I would... I would say ridiculous premise that Donald Trump actually secretly won a landslide at the election and somehow this has been magicked into Joe Biden winning. Right. So that that disturbed me and I began thinking, well, why would why would someone bring across there? Why would why would these why would these two things come together? What would possibly make someone think this? Um, and I mean, I have uh, over the past couple of weeks, past month, really. Uh, paid attention, paid some attention to these sort of Jericho March events and the Stop the Steal events because more and more Catholic figures have been turning up to them and being featured speakers and promoting themselves and the events on social media and making a big thing about it. Um, you know, our Archbishop Vigano uh, did a did a video address to one in December. Um, you know, the, the this sort of new class of Twitter and YouTube pseudo celebrity. yeah celebrity pseudo apologists. Um, have made a big thing about turning up there and, you know, and explicitly aligning um, the Catholic moral priorities with hyper-partisan rhetoric. And this isn't about, you know, well, Joe Biden's in favor of abortion and the church is against abortion. Therefore, you know, you should consider that and consider voting for a candidate who's against abortion. Sure, that's prudential formation of conscience. Absolutely. But there's, there's a lot of distance between saying that and saying, and Donald Trump is the Lord's anointed, and I saw it in a vision. And the you know the attempt to steal the election from Donald Trump is part of the coming of the Antichrist, and we need to fight an actual physical war to unseat every single Democrat. Which is what right. I mean. I saw there was a priest on Twitter who said every single Democrat needs to be removed from political office. This isn't a disagreement. This is a war. Now. Uh, and when and that war becomes that war that sort of war mentality. What's interesting is it becomes sort of covered in some cases and by some rhetoricians with a uh, with a um, 
a, a mantle of, of religious language, of, Christ, of Christian language. So it's like, not just is this a war, but this is a holy war. This yeah. is a, yeah, and, and, you know, one can't avoid it. The general word for holy war is this is a jihad. Yeah. Right? I mean, it becomes sort or of this. Or a crusade. Sort of, yeah, or a crusade is better. It becomes sort of this um, thing where um, there is no separation between this political uh, this political agenda and like the will of God, um, or you know that that it's our job to achieve the will of God through achieving this political end, and and um, and we can like conflate that entirely with um, spiritual warfare and, and, and yeah. Things like that. Well, and what I found particularly interesting is the people who tend to be sort of wearing the I'm a Catholic t-shirt while they're doing all of this tend to be the people who also fundamentally reject the authority of the church. Um, right. You know, I've... Some of the people, some of the people who tend to... I, I, some of the people who reject the authority of the church. What I mean by that is one of the things that's happening right now is that there is, um, there is a new phenomenon, a relatively new phenomenon of sort of like rejecting the magisterium from camps of people who traditionally would be regarded as sort of identifying themselves as deeply faithful to the magisterium. This is a new phenomenon that sort of we're so Catholic that we are, you know, we're so Catholic that the magisterium is wrong. I think long has there been a phenomenon of sort of dissenting from the church or rejecting the magisterium of the church from a sort of socially leftward position. But this sort of socially rightward or politically rightward position of rejecting the, the magisterium of the church is a new phenomenon. That's all I meant. Oh yeah. I, well, and to be clear, they're they're rejecting not just the magisterial teaching of the church on a range of issues. Something I wrote about earlier this week, not thinking I was going to be revisiting the subject as a wider angle by the end of the week, because you know who who knew. Um, but but rejecting the apostolic authority of, for example, the bishops and the hierarchy of the church, and saying that you you know these bishops, this pope, because I mean Archbishop Vigano gave a gave an interview a couple of days ago in which he d- described the the infernal project of the Bergoglio deep church. I mean, this is right. This is I mean I I don't want to use the S word, but um this is bad. This is extremely extremely bad. But it's also, I mean, you say it's a relatively new phenomenon. I'd say it's it's a relatively new phenomenon in our cultural context and time. But I mean, what this is, is Jansenism. This is, I can reject my bishop because I think I'm more Catholic than him. And you can't. Um, but what, what struck me, and this is something that I wrote about um, at the Pillar today, today being Thursday, um, is that this sort of weird Petri dish of... Catholic um, insurrection, I don't know, that's probably a strong word, Um, dissent of Catholic dissent from the magisterial authority of the church and the hierarchy has become very closely aligned with a sort of hyper-partisan political agenda. And then that's how you got people, you know, trying to wear crosses at the Capitol on on Wednesday. Um, But that this has basically been allowed to, to grow unchecked in the church, particularly in the Church of the United States, because initially, and I think not unreasonably, people reacted by saying, "Well, it's just some crank on YouTube. Who cares?" Right. Or, exactly. You know, right. and that's right. and that's fine. Yeah. But again, we've had a year of lockdown where all people are doing is getting their their socialization from YouTube and Twitter and everything. You know, what was four years ago just some crank on Twitter or YouTube is now has an audience of hundreds of thousands. Yeah. And at the same time, I think there is, and you know, I. It's not unreasonable that this has happened, but I think there's been a reticence on the part of many bishops to speak too forcefully, um, to take too strong a stand when they see um, partisan rancor developing in different parts of the church. And I think a lot of this is rooted in the fallout of the of scandals like um, the sexual abuse scandal and the McCarrick scandal, because there's a sort of, you know... Um, anti-clericalism. A, a, an anti-clericalism that, yeah. amongst some sections of the faithful, but also I think amongst the bishops, a sort of hesitation of you know understanding that they're viewed in their office as being somewhat morally compromised as a class, and so not wanting to press too hard or go too far. <clears throat> but the problem is that's created a void, and into that void has stepped these people who are behaving like sort of pop-up evangelical preachers. You know, they're long on personal narrative, but absolutely short on actual authority expertise or anything else and this has to now be confronted because you know okay fine you can argue that a couple hundred people on the internet talking to each other aren't that big a deal fine but hundreds of thousands of people being told for example that vatican ii is not a real ecumenical council that's a problem that's an urgent problem of formation in the church 
I don't expect though, I mean, I agree with you 100% that it needs to be addressed, but I do not expect that it will be. Um, and the, the, <laughs> the, reason is, the, the reason is because I think that there's a failure to appreciate the scope of this audience. And even when it's presented, I think there's a failure to appreciate it. I think there's a failure to appreciate, not by priests. I, I, we might've talked about this last week, in fact, but I think there's, um, you know, I hear from priests all the time who say that those voices are like predominant, predominantly influential voices among young people in their, in their parishes and things like that. But I also, I, I think, you know, I don't, I don't, I think the bishops uh, who might deal with that, I think prefer uh, not to have a conflict about it. And I think they, you know, are sort of allergic to the conflict that might come out of it. And, um, and I think generally, you know, there is probably a bias against sort of like the mediums themselves so that, um, uh, you know, you can think of, well, first of all, you can think of very few theologians who have been sanctioned by the church in recent years, censured by the church in recent years, and even fewer American theologians who have been censured by the church in recent years. So the church does not have, the church in modernity does not have a sort of um, um, zeal for um, correcting uh, false teaching. Um, and uh, and especially especially in the U.S., that's true, um, and I think all the more so when the medium is not books, right? I mean, when the medium is being online and, and these kinds of things. But that's but but it's hugely influential. So then the question becomes, I, I really, you know, and I can tell stories about like there was a bishop who who last year um, signed a letter that had been written by Archbishop Vigano. The, the bishop had signed a letter saying that the pandemic was a creation of. Um, like one world conspiracy types and that the whole purpose of the pandemic was to gain widespread social control over people and then to implant their bodies with technology and all the things. And, uh, and I reached out to the apostolic nuncio and to the, uh, I, I reached out to the, uh, I, I reached out to the apostolic nuncio. I reached out to, um, the local metropolitan. metropolitan, the local metropolitan. And even though it doesn't actually have any authority in the matter, I reached out to the bishop's conference just because I was curious and nobody would take the bait by that. I mean, nobody wanted to comment on this bishop, this bishop, the sitting diocesan bishop teaching these kinds of things. There is such, I think, an allergy to that kind of engagement that, um, you know, bishops are so largely uh, autonomous um, in that way that there's really nobody, those who are empowered to correct them won't. But I think that it's true for other Catholics too, you know, um, those who are empowered to correct or modify or hold accountable largely won't. Um, you can see that in the failure of the of Ex Cordia Ecclesia. And what I mean by the failure of Ex Cordia Ecclesia is that the Holy See, um, or the Apostolic See, promulgated Ex Cordia Ecclesia, a document on Catholic universities that was designed to uh, create a system by which um, those teaching sacred sciences, theologians and others, in Catholic universities would have to teach, um, uh, would not be able to teach heterodox things. And, uh, and it was supposed to be that those teaching the sacred sciences needed to get a mandate um, of approval from their di local ordinary, their diocesan bishop, before they could teach the sacred sciences. It sounds nice on paper, and it would be a great system of accountability, and nobody cares about it. I mean, like the the so-called so ex colleges care about it, but but no bishops, you know, very few bishops want to do it. And when you see a bishop who does, it's kind of encouraging, but very few bishops want to do it or engage with the Catholic university. And, um, and if you think that getting theologians in theology departments to sign something upon which their livelihood depends is 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 uh, has proven to be too difficult a chance a, a, cha a task imagine like roping in the wild west of people teaching falsehood in the name of the faith on the internet um i i just don't think that it's going to happen so then the question becomes if it's not going to happen which i think it's not and if it is a divisive extremely divisive phenomenon in the life of the church which i think it is for a variety of reasons most of which is that it separates people i think from having a sense of being sons and daughters of the church and reduces the faith to a set of sort of purity tests and ideological propositions but if those things are true um the question becomes what uh, what what will be the sort of intelligent, prophetic, compelling, um, teaching voices that help to, uh, that, that help to counter it. Um, and I think we need more of them. I just think if the church is not going to exercise her authority and governance, then part of that apostolic identity and apostolic mission that I was talking about before is finding ways for people who love the church and know the truth and, and, and want to sort of teach from the heart of the church to do so in sufficiently winsome, compelling, and clear ways as to counter the kind of falsehood that is becoming increasingly influential in, in the life of the church. Yeah, but I mean, again, like we were talking about reorienting the entire idea of, of yeah. the church of the United States to evangelization. This requires um, acknowledging a problem that, or a reality that it's it's a hard ask. It's, yeah. you know, nobody wants to say, yeah, we live in a post-Christian society. Nobody wants to say, yeah, there are these lunatics on social media and they're having an actual impact devastating souls and they're having a corrosive impact on the life of ordinary parishes. And even in evangelization, I think people want to think that evangelization is always something done 
in a, in a one-on-one way and things like that. But I think also nobody wants to say, okay, like, are there real ways that we can, that, that, that you know, as the profundity of this influence is becoming clear, um, are there real ways to use the tools of contemporary communications, um, not just to sort of teach the faith, but to teach what it is to live the faith and to, to demonstrate and form for living the faith? And, and, and I hope there are. And yeah, I think it's critical that there are. Yeah. And I hope that the church, I mean, you know, talk about the parish sort of being reimagined and things like that. I, I hope that the bishop who is responsible for sort of coordinating teaching and coordinating apostolic activity in his diocese, which is interesting, the bishop is in charge with sort of like um, spearheading all of the apostolic activity in his diocese. Um, rather, he is charged with coordinating it, and it is us, by virtue of our baptism, who are charged with spearheading it. Um, but I hope that um, it would be cool if the, if the institution, um, the hierarchical constitution of the church, could find ways to support new methods of evangelization. And as I say this stuff, I realize that everything I'm saying is just drawn out of the sort of magisterium of John Paul II and, and Pope Francis' evangelical gaudium. I'm not like saying anything that the church hasn't said she's going to do for like 30 years. But now we see the urgency of it not happening. And, and, and But I don't want to just say that. I mean, we can also see bright spots of places where it is happening. And we can see, wow, there really are people who have figured out how to be missionary disciples, so to speak, in this space and how to proclaim the gospel in this space. And that's important. But you, we can also see that the um, that the uh, the laborers are few. The harvest is ready and the laborers are few. There's a hunger, I think, for meaning. And all of us need to be laborers in the vineyard of the Lord on just sort of pointing to the fact that um, Christ is the answer to the questions of our, of our hearts and not political messianism or political violence. Or... I'm just soapboxing now. You are, and I'm trying really hard not to jump in. This is a problem is I'm struggling. Jump in. No what, I, no, what I really want to do is jump in and say, that's so true. Because <laughs> do you know that reference? No. Do you? No. Oh, no. My my wife and I, for, for a giggle, listened to the sort of test episode of Harry and Meghan's podcast, and it is the most toe curling, awful thing ever oh, committed to imagine. digital recording. But I mean, she basically you can you can hear him, you can hear his eyes moving across the script she's forcing him to read at gunpoint, and then every now and again you just hear her cloyingly insipid voice come over the mic. And say, That's so true, because I because <laughs> I wrote it and made you say it. You guys do not like the Sussexes, and by you guys I mean the English as you are, do not like, do not care for the Sussexes. No. Yeah. The entire point of the royal family, JD, is selfless duty. And the, the, uh, no, I, uh, no, we're, we're at the upper limit of our, of our time for this. If you want me to soapbox about how, what, what disastrous, grasping, egomaniacal, self-referential, spoiled millennial brats those two are, (laughs) I'm happy to do it, but we'll save it for another episode. Okay, we will save it for another episode. Um, I don't know, and I think neither do you know how long this episode has been because we had uh, we had the interruption of me getting kind of kicked out of the conversation by technology, and then we had um, our listeners don't know this, but halfway through the show, uh, Davey, my son, popped in and just sat down on my lap, and it was I had to take him downstairs. So I don't actually know how long we've been talking about this stuff. But Ed, what else do you want to say? Uh, no, I, I think. I think that'll do. There, there was stuff I actually wanted to talk. I mean, this has been the fun thing because one thing I would like to say to close the episode is we did a lot of, I think, really interesting journalistic work uh, This at this, our first week of The Pillar. We did. We have had a great week at our first week of Pillaring. And um, there was stuff I really wanted to talk about. There was some, you know, I got a hold of some legal documents relating to Vatican finances and Gianluigi Torzi, which I wrote about, and I would have loved the chance to unpack. Um but you know, what are you going to do? You know, a guy in a buffalo hat took over the Capitol. I mean, you know, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, that's what it is. Um, <laughs> it's what it is. But I, I would like to say to those who are to those who are listening to this, our second full episode, um, a, a sincere thank you for for you know the initial levels of support we've seen, which exceeded my admittedly grouchy and cautious expectations, but exceeded them by a wide margin. It I'm, is incredible to see the response that we have gotten to this new project, the Pillar, and and. Listeners, thank you, because you listeners are often our biggest um, cheerleaders. We're sort of launching this by word of mouth and um, or word of click, I suppose. And you listeners are often our biggest cheerleaders and our supporters and have reached out to us. I have just scores of emails and DMs that I haven't gotten back to. So if you've said something nice to us and I haven't gotten back to you, I apologize. But I've been so encouraged and edified by this first week of The Pillar, to be sure. I, I have. Um, and I, I would ask... Um... 
as an additional favor. We've we finally got uh, the podcast on the apples. So uh, if if you guys could do that thing, and you know, like it and review it and say nice things, that would that that would be nice. Not for my own edification. I you know I have Twitter, so I have a relatively balanced ego of people screaming abuse at us. So it's not that I need reassurance, but um, it does in fact make it easier for the podcast to get scraped and end up on other platforms and and everything yeah. else. So it it makes a material benefit to our ability to share the podcast. If you would be so kind. Yeah, and the other thing is. Um, um, please continue to, you know, we're, we've been really, really edified by the response to the pillar, but please uh, continue to tell people who you think might benefit from the journalism at the pillar or from the pillar podcast uh, about us and where to find us at www.pillarcatholic.com or the pillar podcast, wherever you get your apps, because we, we really are, we, we have uh, so much sort of investigative, uh, serious uh, reporting that we want to do. And we haven't been able to do as much of it as we wanted to this week because yeah, a guy in a Buffalo hat did take over the Capitol and that took up more of our time than we thought and, and things like that. And also we're just getting started but we have a lot coming and uh and uh so tell i guess all i'm saying is tell your friends please all right the pillar podcast is a production of pillar media and ed and jd joint um i am your host and the pillars editor-in-chief jd flynn and i'm joined by my podcasting partner pillar co-founder and editor ed condon this episode of the pillar podcast was produced by dan diagostine boat and um thank you dear listeners for listening Welcome, Dano.